Everyone doing good? So, um, Jesus says in Luke 5, verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and he will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires for new, for he says the old is good. And if we think about that, we think about wine, and they always say that a wine is better with age, that it's more flavor. But really what Jesus was saying here, he's saying, you know, the old way of doing things, that's going to be gone. I'm sending something new. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. It's going to bring forth something brand new. And I think so many times in our lives, too, whether we've been a Christian for so many years or we haven't made that decision yet, at some point we get to this place of comfort. We get to this place of just being satisfied with the old or being satisfied with the way things have always been. But the heart of God is every single day he wants to empower you for something new. He's got something more for you. And so maybe you've just come to revival tonight because you are dry. You are that place where, you know what, I just feel like I'm in the same place I've been for weeks at a time. Well, let tonight be a night where you say, God, do something brand new within me. Leave me forever changed and transformed. I put my heart before you. I put my entire life before you. Bring forth new wine in me. I don't want to be an old wineskin anymore, just satisfied with the way things have been. Bring something brand new in me. Do a brand new work in me. So as we continue to worship and as we continue to prepare our hearts for this message, just start to begin to just pray that. Just pray that prayer over your life right now. As we continue to worship God, just do something brand new in me tonight.
closer to your heart, God. God, for we're pursuing you with everything that we have, God. Let us hold nothing back. God, our lives are yours. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been living in the book of Revelation in recent weeks. Two places in the book of Revelation you will find that John the Revelator says that there'll come a day 
when he will wipe away every tear. Can you imagine a time when there are no more tears, no more heartache, no more trouble, no more pain? That day will come. It will come. Stand it better by 
this plan keeps unfolding and glory lies ahead I don't see it yet I don't see it yet but a day Welcome to Monday Night Revival at Salem Fields. Glad that you're here. We welcome all of those who've joined us by live stream. Pardon me just a minute. Hi, Gretchen. <laughs> Hope your treatment went well today. She has two more, and she'll be done. And uh, we're grateful. We thank God for that. <clears throat> I'm reading tonight from Ephesians chapter 6. We are in a spiritual warfare. If you haven't already discovered that as a Christian, then you will soon discover that. And so tonight I want to share with you truth that I hope will help you in the battle that we find ourselves in. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. The Apostle Paul has been relating to the church at Ephesus. In these last three chapters of the book, what it's going to be like to live out the Christian experience after he has told them about what has been provided for them in the first three chapters. And then he concludes this letter to the church at Ephesus by saying this Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, Father, we've sensed your presence already. The music has prepared us for your Word. I pray tonight, Father, that you would make this Word that you've laid upon my heart to share with this congregation, literally come alive in their minds and their hearts. 
For when we leave here in a little while, we're going to go out into a hostile environment. And we need to know how to do battle spiritually. So come, Spirit of the living God, protect us in this place from any influence of the enemy. I pray that the message would have its necessary effect upon us. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I would speculate tonight that there is not a person in the building who has not had to deal with the oppressive, confronting attack of satanic influence. Everybody in the place, if you profess to know Jesus Christ, you've had to deal with the attack of the enemy. And I want to remind us all tonight of this simple fact. It's a given, but we need to remember it. Satan is real. He's real. He is not some figment of our imagination. It's not something that we evangelicals have conjured up in our own belief system. He is real. Several years ago, I was conducting a revival meeting at Elk River Church of the Nazarene in Charleston, West Virginia. I'd gone out to eat after one of the services, and then I went back to my motel room. And after watching television for a little while, I decided to go into bed, and I walked through the kitchenette area of that motel suite and then into my bedroom. I climbed between the sheets and turned over on my right side, ready for a good night's rest. And then all of a sudden it happened. Something that had never happened before to me and has never happened since. All of a sudden, there was a presence in my bedroom. I don't even think that I can describe to you the fear that I felt. But I can tell you that I was literally paralyzed with fear. So much so that I could not move. I was lying on my right side. I tried to turn over on my backside to look at the door of the bedroom to see if maybe I'd left the motel room open and someone somehow had gotten in and they were going to rob me or do me bodily harm. But I couldn't even roll over on my back. I know it sounds somewhat melodramatic, but it did happen. And after an indeterminable amount of time, I finally was able to force myself over on my back and looked toward the door, and all of a sudden, whatever it was, swept across my bed and dissipated through the nearby wall. The next day, I had lunch with one of the men of the congregation where I was ministering that week. And I told him what had happened the previous night, and I said, Steve, do you have any idea what that might have been? He said, there is no question in my mind, Lane, what that was. That was the presence of evil, satanic-inspired evil. C.S. Lewis concluded that there are two opposite errors that must be avoided regarding satanic influence. On the one hand, we fall into error if we become so Satan conscious that we lose sight of the victorious power of God. Or we may ignore the reality of satanic influence and his being that we make of him a cartoon caricature and take him too lightly. In between those two realities, there is a balance that we, the people of God, must come to. It's not my purpose tonight to exalt Satan. On the contrary, 
but rather to help us know how to deal with the satanic influences that are under his power and his control. Well, where do you start in coming to that understanding? Well, I think that we must have an accurate description of the devil. We must know who we're up against. We must see what the Bible has to say about who he is. And it would be productive for us tonight to correct common misconceptions regarding Satan. And let me just tell you, let me announce to this congregation tonight that Satan is not a God. He's not a God. He is a fallen angel. And if you don't remember anything else I've said to you tonight, I hope you'll remember that. Satan is not a God. He is a fallen angel. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit or attitude, which is now at work in those who are disobedient. Yes, he has power, according to the scriptures, but he is nothing more than a fallen angel. And because he is a fallen angel, he is not possessing those divine attributes of the one triune God whom you and I serve. He is not um. Omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. Somebody said that he is like, an, like a lion, but he is a lion on a leash. And I like that image. He is a lion on a leash. First Peter says it like this. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. We have scriptural proof, although it's not stated specifically, we have scriptural proof that Satan's power is limited. And to find that proof, you have to go to the Old Testament book of Job. And it's an incredible book. And when you go to the book of Job, you will discover that for whatever reason, God had a meeting in the council hall of heaven. And Satan made his appearance. And he began to complain to God about God's servant Job. And in so many words, Satan said to God, well, anybody would serve you to have everything that Job has. And God responded to Satan and he said, all right, you can use your power. He says this in Job chapter one, verse 12. Very well then, everything Job has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And you know that part of the story perhaps, that Job had 10 children. He was a wealthy man. He had livestock. He had possessions. And all of that was swept away in a moment by Satan. But notice what Job said. In the midst of the loss, Job said in verse 21 of Job 1, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amen. Well, for whatever reason, God had another council meeting in the council hall of heaven. Satan made his appearance a second time, and he began to complain to God again about Job and he said, well, anybody would serve you to save their own skin. And God said in so many words, all right, you can go down there and you can lay your hand on Job, but you can't kill him. And so Satan left the presence of God. And he went, and if you know the story, you know that loathsome boils began to come out on the skin of Job. I don't know if you've ever had a boil or not. 
I've had one, and that was enough. He had them from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And you perhaps remember the story that his wife kicked him out of the house. He was on an ash heap. And she said, why don't you curse God and die? And he said, you talk like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin. But in the story, we can see that God limited the power of Satan. He is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. Our God can demonstrate his power in a marvelous way in your life and my life, and his power is not diminished one iota. He is an omnipotent, all-powerful God, but Satan is limited in his power. God limits it. He is not only not omnipotent, he is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. That's what omniscient means. He is not all-knowing. He can't read your mind. He doesn't know what you're thinking. Don't give him more credit than he deserves. He can't read your mind. He's not omniscient. You know why he can't read your mind? He's a fallen angel. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. Our God is omnipresent. Our God is all-knowing. Our God knows everything that's going on in your life, in your mind, what you've done today, what you're going to do tomorrow, what your plans are. He knows everything there is to know about you. But Satan does not know that. And not only that, Satan cannot be like God in that God can be everywhere at the same time. I have evangelist friends who are in revival meetings all over this country. I have a friend by the name of Billy Huddleston. He is in a revival meeting over near Atlanta, Georgia. I have a friend by the name of David Gallimore. He is in a revival meeting somewhere else. I have a friend by the name of Gary Bond. He's in a revival. I have friends by the name of Larry and Town of the Crone. They're in a revival in Nobone, Indiana, wherever that is. And God, God is in every one of those places, just like we've sensed his presence here tonight. But Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at the same time. I think one of the most Common misconceptions of Satan is that he is everywhere. No question about it. His evil influences are everywhere. But Satan is not everywhere with all due respect. Have you ever heard anybody say this? Have you ever said it? Well, Satan was really on me today. Have you ever said that? Well, with all due respect... If he is after you personally, concentrating on you personally, you must really be doing something significant in the kingdom of God. Out of over 5 billion people on this planet, God has singled you out or Satan has singled you out to attack you personally. You must be doing something mighty good. And quite honestly, if he is with you, I'm perfectly happy for that to be because it means he's not with me. (laughs) He is not omnipresent. Do you know why? He's a fallen angel. He cannot be everywhere at the same time. The best that he can do is to delegate to those fallen angels, those forces under his authority, 
what he wants them to do to try and cause you and me to stumble and have difficulty in our own spiritual life. You see, Satan is the leader of those angels who decided to follow him when Satan, Lucifer was his angelic name, trying to overthrow our triune God. And a third of the angelic forces left with him. They were cast out of heaven. And those fallen angels that were created by God to do his beck and call, they followed Lucifer. And now they have become spiritual mutants and Satan is using them to try and put forth his evil agenda in this day and in your life. We do not know. As far as I know, I've not found anywhere in the Bible an exact figure of how many angels God created. But I do read this in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 11. John says it like this. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Now, if you just use what he just said as a base figure for the number of angels that were created, do you know how much 10 times 10,000 is? 100 million. You take one-third of 100 million, if we're using that as a base figure for the number of angels that were created, then you have at Satan's beck and call 50 million angels to do what he wants to do, to come and attack you and me as we endeavor to serve Jesus Christ. Peter and Jude, also in their writing, they speak of angels being held in chains for judgment. We know that Jesus, when he walked on the face of the earth, he had to deal with demons that man at Gadara. There was a legion of demons in the man at Gadara. And we understand that there are demons then. Now, I don't begin to know or understand how all that connects together. But to say that Satan is attacking you personally is probably incorrect. It's more correct to say that satanic influence or forces are working against you to cause spiritual failure. But remember this. Satan is a defeated foe. He's already beaten he is a defeated foe. The only power that he has is the power to try and convince you and me that he has more power than he actually has. He is a defeated foe. Paul reminded the Christians in Rome that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus will be with you. And if Satan is a defeated foe, then those fallen angels are defeated as well. And anything or everything under his authority and under his power is also defeated by the power of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. He is a defeated foe. Now, once we identify Satan, who he is, his limitations, we need to be aware of his tactics. What is the tactic of the devil? How does he try to manipulate you and me to hinder us spiritually? He endeavors to bring into our lives all of those things that are contrary to the character of God. And one of the things that he will use is fear. He will use fear to try and get you to think God doesn't love you. 
God doesn't care about you. If God loved you and cared about you, why are you going through this? Why is your child having to deal with that? Why is the job going on? If God cared about you at all, and he'll try to rob you of that security that we can have in Jesus Christ. I come from a wonderful spiritual heritage. I've already noted that my dad was an evangelist. And during World War II, my dad conducted tent revivals in the triad section of North Carolina. And my dad had this tent that he owned and they would come into a community and they'd stretch these banners across the street of the community and it would say Loman Evangelistic Team and give the dates and the times of the services. And my dad also had a quartet that sang with him, made up of my dad who sang bass, uh, my uncle Bob, dad's brother, who sang lead, and my uncle Raymond Dad's brother also sang tenor. Another friend of the family by the name of Johnny Harder, he sang baritone. And my uncle Bill Rice, dad's brother-in-law, played the guitar. And when my uncle Raymond went off to World War II, then Uncle Bill stepped in to sing the tenor part. My uncle Bill was just an incredible man. I, I loved my uncle Bill. Fortunately for us, for me, when we moved back to Greensboro, North Carolina, we moved into a house just about a mile down the road from my Uncle Bill and my Aunt Rachel. So I got to spend a lot of time with my Uncle Bill. He was a joy to be around. He would tell those stories from those days when he traveled with my dad in revival meeting. The wonderful ministry that they had during those years and how crowds would come and people would get saved and he would tell those stories and some of them would be humorous. And I remember one time he was saying that they'd heard my dad preach his sermon so many times that they would sit on the platform and count the ceiling tiles in the sanctuary to pass the time of day. Or he'd say, I, I remember when we'd be sitting on the platform and we'd heard that sermon your dad was preaching that particular night a number of times and We'd count how many men in the church had white shirts on and how many had blue shirts on. He said, just anything to pass the time of day. And he'd tell us those kinds of stories. And I just love being around the man. He turned 80. He gave him a big birthday party. I suppose 200 people came to that party. My Uncle Bill had gone from working with my dad into men's clothing, worked for the Bostonian Shoe Company, and had done very well until he retired and now he was singing in the choir at the Westland Church in Greensboro and a prominent member of that church. When he turned 80, though, something happened to my Uncle Bill. I can't really explain what. The doctors tried to figure it out. Some kind of deep, dark depression took over my Uncle Bill. Gretchen and I had to help my Aunt Rachel put him in a psych unit at the hospital in Greensboro. He got somewhat better so he could come home. But then he just began to die. Finally had to be hospitalized. And I can remember going into my Uncle Bill's hospital room. He had the oxygen tube on to aid him in his breathing. I'd sit by his bed and he'd look at me and he'd say, Lane, do you think I'm saved? Do you think I'm saved? You think I'm going to heaven? I don't know, Lane. I don't know if I'm really saved or not. I, I'm afraid, Lane. And I tried to re, re, just restore his 
positive attitude about the whole spiritual thing. I, I said, oh, Uncle Bill, you're saved. Think of all those times you traveled with my dad, all those revivals you worked, all those songs you sang, all those people that came to know the Lord under your influence. Yes, you're saved. You've been in the church all of these years. You grew up in the church. The enemy is just trying to rob you of what you have. But he, I'd come back and see him again. Lane, Lane, do you think I'm saved? So what the enemy was doing and what he will do often is to try and rob you and me of the security that we have in Jesus Christ. I'm glad that I can tell you that just before he died, God came as he always does and he provided my Uncle Bill with what we call dying grace so that there was a testimony on his lips that he was ready to go. And he just told the nurse one day, he said, why don't you just take the oxygen off? And within a matter of 30 minutes, he was in the presence of Jesus. But Satan will use fear to try and rob you of your personal intimate relationship with Jesus. My oldest son, Wesley, I talked to you about him in one of the other sermons. I told you that he was born while I was traveling in evangelism and first two years of his life was on the road. And then I took a church in Nashville, Tennessee, wonderful parsonage and had three bedrooms and two and a half baths. It was just a nice parsonage. And so I was so glad that finally Wesley wouldn't be sleeping next to me. <laughs> but I want to tell you that after we moved into that parsonage, every night, every night, that little guy would crawl out of his bed and toddle into our bedroom and crawl into bed next to me and wake me up every night. And I finally realized this has got to come to a stop. And so I remember the night that I, I told Wesley, oh, he was probably about, oh, three, maybe four. I, I don't remember the exact age, but he was old enough to know. And he could talk and understand. And so this particular night, I took him to bed and I tucked him into his bed. He had a big double bed. You ought to be happy with that. Big double bed in his own room. Had all these toys there in his own room. And it was his room. I tucked him into bed and I said, now, Wesley, this is the night. You're going to stay in here all night long. I said, son, if you get up out of your bed and come to my bed 10 times, I'm going to bring you back 10 times. You're going to stay in your bed and you're going to sleep all night in your bed. And he whined and whimpered and complained about that possibility. So I tucked him in, had prayers with him. I said, nothing, good thoughts. You're going to be fine. You'll sleep well. It'll be all right. And so I went back into the den to watch some television. I had not been in my chair for more than a minute until he screamed bloody murder. And he said, Dad, get in here right now. And I ran back to his room. I said, what's the matter? What's the matter? He was sitting straight up in bed. He said, Dad, there's somebody under my bed. Under my bed. I said, there's nobody under your bed, son. Get out of bed. We got out of, he got out of bed and we looked and See, there's nobody under your bed. Now get back in bed. And don't bother me anymore. Go to sleep. Think good thoughts. I tucked him back in. I went back to my chair and trying to watch television. I don't suppose. A minute passed. And he screamed again, Dad, get in here right now. And so I ran back to him. What's the matter now? He said, there's somebody in my closet. <laughs> I said, no, no. I know what you're trying to do. I know what you're trying to pull tonight, son. It's not going to work. I opened the closet door and I pushed his clothes aside and I said, see, there's nobody in your closet. You're fine. You're going to be okay. I said, now just lay down, go to sleep, think good thoughts. 
You're going to be all right. I went back and got in my chair. I had not been in my chair 30 seconds until the guy, he says, Dad, you got to come quick. And I went back to his wife. I said, what's the matter now? He said, my stuffed animals are coming alive. I said, now, Wesley, you're not going to get away with this. Your stuffed animals are not coming alive. I said, just to remove that excuse, I'm taking all your stuffed animals to the other room. And I did. And I came back and I got down by him by his bed and I said, now, son, go to sleep. You're going to be all right. Just think good thoughts and there's nobody under your bed. We checked. There's nobody in your closet. I showed you that. Your stuffed animals are not coming alive. And even if they were, they're in the other room. <laughs> and I said, besides all that, Jesus is in here with you. He said, get him out of here too. I don't want anybody in here. As God is my witness. That's what he said. I think, I think Jesus laughed on that one. I, I really do. I, I was amazed that that came out of that little kid's mouth. But he was a kid. He was afraid. He might have thought he heard a thump under his bed. He might have thought he heard the clothes rustling in his closet. He might have thought with the shadows coming in as a result of the streetlight outside of his bedroom window, he, he saw his teddy bear wave at him. He, he may have thought that. I mean, after all, he's a kid. His imagination's running wild. And that's how the enemy works. He'll try to get your imagination going 100 miles a minute to try to get you to think things that are not true, that create fear in the heart of the truly born-again believer. But remember tonight, my friend, the Bible the Bible tells us that he is a defeated foe. He is a fallen angel. According to the word of God, depending upon the version you use, there are minimum of 80 and possibly, depending upon the version, 365 fear nots in your Bible. One for every day. So when Satan comes against you, remember that. Fear not. He'll use fear. He'll use condemnation. He'll try to condemn you. And I, I don't really understand all of this. I, I've tried to piece this together in my mind as I, I reflected on this truth and the Word of God. Uh, maybe, maybe he is able to project things into our minds. I, I think he can. Uh, things that we did in the past that are, it's public knowledge. And he, he takes those things and he shoots them into our mind and we see them across the theater of our brain. And we remember the things that we've done in the past that we wish we had never done. Uh, that we wish we could just kind of erase from our memory banks. Wouldn't it be great if we when you were saved, that the blood of Jesus Christ not only covered your sin, it erased your memory. <laughs> I, I wish that could have happened. I wish there were things that I, I hadn't done. And how he, how he does it, I, I don't know. But from time to time, those things will come into my mind and Satan will say, you're a Christian? And you did that? You're a preacher? And you did that? And he'll try to condemn using the events of my past. The memory's an amazing thing. 
Why is it that I can remember the words to the Beatles song, I want to hold your hand from 1964, and sometimes I can't remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> the fact remains, though, that while I may remember things I would rather forget, the Bible tells me that God has forgotten. Satan can't condemn you with things that God has forgotten. Hebrews 8.12 says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's good news. Micah 7.19 says, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And Corey Ten Boom said, and then he puts up a no fishing sign. I like that. God does not remember our sins against us. But he'll not only use fear, not only use condemnation, he will use temptation. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can stand, but will with every temptation make a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. We know that Satan is responsible for temptation in your life and mine. But here's what he does. He tries to get us to believe that when we're tempted, that we've actually sinned. Oswald Chambers makes a remarkable observation about this. Satan does not tempt us to do wrong things, he says. He tempts us in order to make us lose what God has put into us by regeneration the possibility of being of value to God. He does not come on the line of tempting us to sin, but on the line of shifting the point of view. And only the Spirit of God can detect this as a temptation of the devil. That's why it's so important that we be filled with the Spirit. So when the enemy does come and he tries to tempt us, uh, tries to get us to compromise, that we recognize that we can see that temptation coming a mile away and we know how to handle it. We resist it. We rebuke it. Temptation is not the same thing as sin. Temptation is extra personal. Temptation comes from out here. And Satan uses what's out here to try and attack you and me, causing us to compromise. But here's a question. When does what we see become lust of the flesh? Eyes were made to see. And I've lived long enough to discover that men Men are visually stimulated. Women, on the other hand, are emotionally stimulated. So let me talk to the men a minute. You men, you see a beautiful woman? See something on television? And all of a sudden you feel what you see being used of the enemy and you feel those baser instincts begin to rear their ugly head? When does what you see become lust of the flesh? Is that a sin at that moment? There is a difference between that which is temptation 
and when that temptation actually becomes sin. Before Gretchen and I were married, I lived in Greensboro, pastored a church there. My Uncle Bill and I, that I mentioned earlier, he and I would often have lunch together. And we had a favorite place where we would go to lunch. It was called um, the Pavilion Restaurant, run by some Greek folks, a Greek family. Really enjoyed going there. Good food, decent price. I'd go there almost every day for lunch. And one day, my Uncle Bill and I were there, and most of the serving staff at that restaurant were ladies, young ladies. And this particular day that we were in there, one of those young ladies didn't wear enough clothes to work. I mean, she just didn't wear enough clothes. What she chose to wear exposed far too much. And by the way, you don't have to go to the Pavilion restaurant to see that. You can see that at Walmart, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but nonetheless, we had our lunch there that day. We couldn't help but notice her. I mean, she, it's a small restaurant, and she would be making her rounds, taking care of her guests. And, and uh, so my Uncle Bill and I, we finished our lunch, and we went up to pay out. And we're just standing there waiting on our time because it was lunchtime, quite a few people. And we're just standing waiting in line to pay our bill. And here she comes. This young, attractive, shapely young lady. She's walking down this aisle over here where there are booths and she's going to walk right in front of me and Uncle Bill. So we're standing there. Now listen, you may not like to hear preachers talk like this. But we, we preachers remain mostly human most of our lives, don't we? So anyway, <laughs> I'm standing. Oh, and by the way, I was reared in a conservative church, very conservative church. I can remember as a teenager, the adults would teach us in youth class. Well, now you can't help the first look. It's the second look that's sinful. They would actually teach us that. You know what I found out? That's not scriptural. <laughs> That is not in the Bible. <laughs> so, my Uncle Bill and I, we were standing there waiting to pay our bill. And here she comes. I'm standing here and Uncle Bill's standing there. And the closer she got, you could feel it. You could feel it. And as she walked past Uncle Bill and myself, I can see him out of the corner of my eye. Both of us, both of us. We just kind of stood there and went. Just kind of like that. And then my Uncle Bill turned and looked at me and he said, you know, Lane, sometimes you got to pray quick. And when he said that, it was gone. It was gone. Whatever the enemy was trying to use to get inside my head as a man seeing another woman, it was gone. That's why it's so important that we recognize what he's trying to do. 
The temptations are going to come from out there. And we must know what is operating in our lives by defining the source. We must be able to identify the handprint of the enemy. Carnal anger does not come from, the, from God. It comes from the enemy. Lying does not come from God. It comes from Satan. A negative critical spirit doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy. The idea that I can be a Christian and continue to live in known sin, that doesn't come from the Bible or God. It comes from the enemy. And we've got to be able to identify the handprint of Satan. His method of operation is always the same. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. Satan is ruthless. He is powerful. He is cruel. He is wicked. And he is not creative. He doesn't have to be. He doesn't have to be creative. The Bible says we all have a sin that does so easily beset us. So he didn't have to be creative. He has one, one primary purpose in your life and mine. And that is to deface the work and grace of God provided by God's son, Jesus Christ, for the life of the believer. So how do you deal with him? Knowing all that we've just told you. How do you deal with the enemy when he does come? Well, here's how you deal with him. You deal with him with authority. He's a fallen angel. He has no more authority over you than you allow him to have. Last year, about a year ago this month, it was my great privilege to take a trip of a lifetime. I left out of... Newark, New Jersey, flew across the pond to Berlin, Germany. And I got to celebrate with 300 other people from around the world as part of a conference called Wittenberg 17. And we celebrated the, 400, or the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Actually got to go down to Wittenberg, Germany, got to go into the castle church. We had a service all to ourselves. We had the church to ourselves on a Wednesday night. 300 people in that beautiful cathedral church celebrating the Protestant Reformation. Celebrating where Martin Luther hammered his 95 thesis on the door of that church proclaiming the just shall live by faith. And that's why you and I are sitting here tonight. It all started with that 95 thesis written by Martin Luther, hammered on the door of that church. What a joy that was. I learned a lot about Martin Luther before I went, while I was there, and even after I came home. I heard this story about Martin Luther. The story is told that one day Martin Luther was asleep in his room. And all of a sudden he sensed that there was someone in the room with him. And he rolled over on his bed and looked, and there at the foot of his bed stood none other than Lucifer himself. This malevolent force of evil standing right there at the foot of Martin Luther's bed. And Martin Luther, the story goes, looked at him and said, oh, it's just you, and turned over and went back to bed. <laughs> I like that. I like that. The spirit born, spirit filled child of God, 
does not have to worry. You don't have to tremble. You don't have to be afraid of Satan. Used to think, when I was a kid growing up in the church, teenager in the church, even after I got saved, I used to mistakenly think that Satan was second in power to God. Do you know he's not? You know why? He's a fallen angel. He's a fallen angel. You know who is second in power to God? The spirit-born, spirit-filled child of God that's determined to serve God, live in the word that allows the Holy Spirit to govern their life and guide their path. That's the one that's second in power to God. We not only have regeneration that's been bought for us through the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been given access to resurrection power that brought Jesus out of the grave. And we can claim that and we can hold it up against Satan and he'll try to condemn you. He'll come and say, well, what about this and what about that? And you'll say, yes, I did those things. I am guilty, but it's all under the blood. And by the way, Satan, I did things you don't know about, but that's under the blood too. And I have victory over that as well. You deal with him with authority, with quiet confidence. You deal with him using scripture. I've got to bring this to a close. Scripture is a critical element in dealing with Satan. Notice what happened with Jesus. He is our model. He is our pattern. Luke chapter four, verse one, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted, tempted by the devil. And here's what Satan does. He did it to Jesus. He'll do it to you and me. He uses the flesh temptation. The devil said to Jesus, chapter four, verses three and four, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What harm would that be? He'd been in the wilderness for 40 days. I mean, he's the God man, had to be hungry, had to be thirsty. What harm would there be in just taking a stone? He was the divine son of God. He could do this. He could just speak to the stone and make it bread. What, what's wrong with that? But you see the source of the temptation he recognized. And notice what he said. It is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. He'll use the flesh temptation on you and me. And because he does use the flesh temptation, it's so important that we know how to use the word of God to bring to bear against those times when he tempts us through flesh impulses. We have to sanctify our eyes. We have to put our, our flesh on the altar and make sure that we give the Holy Spirit complete access to our lives, to check us, to guide us away from those things and those influences that would cause us to, to, to stumble spiritually. Satan used the easy way out temptation with Jesus. Verse five and eight, the devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me to give you and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, It'll all be yours. What a deal. Why did Jesus come? He came to draw all men unto himself. And right now, Satan is offering in one fell swoop, Jesus, everything he came for, without a cross, without a spear in the side, nails in the hands and feet, thorn crown brow, don't have to worry about that. I'll just give this all to you right now. All you have to do, all you have to do is just worship me. 
And then Jesus said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan will use the easy way out temptation for you and me. Here's how he does it. He'll come and he'll use the ploy of grace. Grace is free. Grace is unlimited. And because grace is free and because grace is unlimited, he'll try to convince you it's okay because the grace is free and the grace is unlimited. And after you do what I'm tempting you to do, you can come back and ask for that grace to be applied once again and you'll be home free. Instead of living a disciplined life, instead of staying in the word and recognizing the ploy of the enemy, he'll try to convince you to use the easy way out. And then Satan used the integrity temptation. Verse nine, the devil led him up to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then the enemy does something that's very subtle. He says, for it is written. He uses scripture to try and trip up Jesus. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you, guard you carefully. They will lift up your hands. You'll not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, do not put the Lord your God to the test. At every point, at every point, Jesus refuted the advance of the enemy. I have discovered in my own spiritual journey that if I don't have this book hidden in my heart, I'm susceptible to anything. It's the greatest. Have you ever wondered this? How many of you struggle with studying the Bible? How many of you struggle finding time to just sit down and pull away from the rigors and the rush of the world to get into the Word of God? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. You ever wondered why that is? I'll tell you why. The Word of God is the only tangible, feelable, seeable, touchable evidence we have of God. Everything else is by faith outside of nature. So the enemy knows that if he can keep you and me out of this, he has a better chance of getting you to compromise. When dealing with the devil, don't do a deal. Don't do a deal. You have to get him all the way out of your life. Let's finish this. We finish where we started. Stand firm then with the belt, truth of, belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt of truth. The belt of truth. We have the truth. Satan is a liar. Father of lies. We have the truth. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. Remember your position in Christ. Nobody can rob you of that. Not even Satan. Remember what the Bible says you have and who you are in him, in Christ. 
Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Peace that passes all understanding. Even in the throes of despair, there is something about knowing God and having the word of God hidden in our hearts and having the Holy Spirit operating in our lives that even when our world may be coming apart at the seams, there is a peace that is there that passeth all understanding. Take up the shield of faith. Engage the activity of a second party. You're not in this alone. The Holy Spirit is called a paraclete. That simply means one called alongside to help. And he is our power source. When we lose our energy to stand, he comes and he reinforces our ability to stand against the enemy. That's why it's so important that you know what it is to be filled to the full with the Holy Spirit, to the max with Jesus Christ. Take the helmet of salvation. Feed your mind the word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. They overcame by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the lamb. Use the word as an offensive weapon against the forces of evil. Finally, be strong. In the church, be strong. In the pastoral team, no. Be strong in the Lord. In the Lord. Remember this. Satan is a fallen angel. You're second in power to God. You don't have to live defeated, discouraged. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and what it tells us about who we are and what we have at our disposal. And I pray that in these closing moments, we would put the enemy on notice. He's not going to defeat us. Our heads are still bowed. In just a moment, I'm, we're going to play some music. And maybe you came tonight because you've been struggling or because the enemy's attacking you. We're not going to ask you why or what or anything like that. But I want to invite you to come and put the enemy on notice tonight. You can come down here and stand. You can come down here and kneel and just say on the authority of the word of God, I am not going to be defeated. When I leave here, I am going to be everything that I need to be. I am going to trust him and I'm going to believe him to give me the victory that I need in my life. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. Music's playing. Anybody like that? Lane, I want to come. I want to put him on notice. He's not going to have the upper hand in my life. I just want to go on record tonight and say, I trust him. I believe him. I'm going to walk out of here with a new confidence that I'm not in this battle alone. I'm not in this fight by myself. Maybe you're here tonight and say, Lane, there's some things about my personal habits that the enemy often uses to try and trip me up, cause me to do things that are spiritually compromising. 
I need to come and ask God to sanctify those areas of my life. Because I don't want to fail there. I don't want to be the in and out, up and down kind of Christian. I want to be consistent in my walk. Anyone else want to come? We're going to pray here in a moment. Then your pastor's going to come and we'll be done. That's an old song that's playing. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who trust and obey. Father, these have come. You know the motive behind their coming. So we lift them to you tonight. And I pray, Father, that they would walk out of here with a new sense of their position in you so that when the enemy does come and we know he will we'll be better equipped to handle him he's just a fallen angel he has no more power over us than we give him help us father to rest in your strength be willing to call upon your assistance and even people around us that we have confidence in to pray for us when the enemy does attack so that we might stand firm like the Apostle Paul admonished. Stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. I pray that you'd build a hedge around these young people. There are young people kneeling here tonight, Father. Build a hedge around them. There's a young lady here that wanted to come and she's got physical issues, I pray. While the enemy would try to defeat her in regard to what she's facing physically, I pray that you'd give her peace. For these dads and these moms, these men, I pray, Father, that we might know how better, know how to operate in a world that's gone daft with sin so that we might live in victory in the midst of it. Be in the world, but not of the world. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we just continue to pray with our heads bowed and our eyes closed just a minute? I have a sense that there might be somebody here tonight that needs to know Jesus Christ. That maybe you've come here and your sins have never been forgiven. You've never asked Christ to be your Savior. Amen. You've never asked Him to forgive you of your sins. And I don't know, just had a strong thought that maybe I need to do that tonight. I might have missed it, but I want to give you that opportunity. So if you're here tonight and you've never received Jesus Christ, or maybe as there was a time that you had a relationship with him, but you walked away, and uh, you would like to just come back to him tonight and, and just ask him to forgive you and invite him into your life, would you just pray this prayer with me? You can pray it out. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can pray it in your heart. Um, just pray it with by faith and sincerely. Pray this, Jesus. Just pray that, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Just pray that and then ask Jesus, Jesus, please forgive me of all of my sins. You know, the Bible says we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so the good news is Jesus sent his son, God sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. 
so that we could be forgiven. So you just uh, ask God to forgive you. Jesus, forgive me of all of my sins. And then you just simply invite Jesus into your life. Just say, Jesus, I invite you into my heart to be my Savior. The Bible says we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The Bible says we shall be saved. That's all there is. And you might end it by thanking him. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Just pray that. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me of my sins. And thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. Now, if all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed, no one looking around tonight, you just want to say, you know what, buddy? I prayed that prayer, and I want to make witness to God and to you and maybe Lane that, uh, that I, I believe God saved me tonight. I believe that he, I prayed that prayer, and I believe he heard my prayer. And so I'm going to raise my hand. Anybody like that tonight would just simply raise your hand? Yep, I see your hand up front. Anybody else tonight? Yeah, I see your hand, young man. Anyone else? Yes, over here. In the back. Father, thank you. Thank you, young man. God bless you. Father, we thank you for those that have raised their hands tonight, Lord. We know that raising their hand doesn't save them, Lord. But we know, dear God, that they believe in their heart tonight that you have forgiven them of their sins and that you're their Savior. So, Father, we thank you for that, and we praise your holy name. And maybe you're in your seat tonight, and you say, "What? Well, you know what, buddy? I didn't have the courage to come up front tonight, but I do have I do have something going on in my life. The enemy is after me. And would you would you guys pray for me? Would you and Gay pray for me? And with all of our heads bowed, would you just slip up your hand? Anybody that didn't come up tonight, that would say, "Pray for me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. God bless you. Yes, up front here. Anyone else? Yes, over here. Thank you. God bless you. The good news tonight, folks, is God sees your hand, and he knows your heart. Whether you knelt here or you sat in your seat tonight, you can have victory tonight. So, Father, we pray for those that raised their hand tonight. God, we pray that you would give them the sense of your presence in their life, God, that they would remember what Lane said that touched my heart deeply tonight, Lord, that we're second in command. And we have authority over the enemy who would like to destroy us. So God, help all of us tonight to remember that. As we leave this place tonight, can we leave in victory, knowing that you loved us and you gave your life for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, praise the Lord, amen. God bless you guys, amen, amen. Yeah, I guess give God a hand tonight. Amen. Praise the Lord. Wow. You know, when I, Rich and I were talking about revival, and he said, buddy, what do you want to call revival? And I said, well, I thought about it, and I said, I said something that really wasn't, I just said, well, let's just call it fall revival. But really what was in my mind that night, and I thought it was kind of weird, I said, I think we need to call it a red alert revival. What I mean about that is we need revival. Not only do we need revival in our church, folks, but we need revival in Spotsylvania County. We need revival in the state of Virginia. We need revival in our nation. We need revival around the world. So we can be a part of that tonight. Could you call somebody up between the night and tomorrow night and say, hey, there's a red alert. You need to be in revival because God's showing up here and he's doing an incredible work. You might not want to say that about the red alert, but you might invite him. Would you do that? And let's see what God is going to do tomorrow night. Lane, you going to be here? I'll be here. All right. And Gay and I'll be here, and many of you, all of you coming back, right? 
All right. All right. Here's the deal. We got $1,300 over the weekend, right? We promised that we're going to give $6,000 in a love offering. So we got a little ways to go. So tonight, we're going to take an offering. Do you want people to come up front or do you want to give it at the door? You got to give it. Okay. Come on up front. We'll do it up front. Play some music. And we're going to take an offering. You can go out to the uh, kiosk. You can give the credit card, debit cards. You can go online. If you're online, punch the little green button, and you can give a 1000 there or however much you want to give. But everything that you give, we're going to give to Lane, okay, after we give the Lord his little uh, part of that. Uh, so, Lane, we'll tithe for you <laughs> right here. <laughs> okay? All right. God bless you. And don't leave until you give him the offering. All right. <laughs>